This is the final episode of Understanding Zechariah. We have arrived at chapter 14, where this incredible prophetic book reaches its conclusion. And Zechariah chapter 14, like a lot of the book of Zechariah, has a lot of puzzling features and a lot of things that are mysterious. And I think as we've been studying this book, I hope you understand and appreciate the fact that a lot of people have studied this book and it still has a lot of stuff that isn't quite clear. And I think it's important to understand when we study the Bible that we're not going to get everything in one pass. In fact, it's about a lifetime of learning, of thinking and praying and talking with other people about these books that really makes, I think, studying the Bible a great adventure, something exciting, something that brings new insights each time. So if this book feels like it's a little hard to grasp, don't, don't be afraid of that. This is just trying to build a little bit at a time a foundation in the Old Testament. And honestly, as I've been studying it, I'm sure as I study it in years to come, I'm going to learn more and more details about Zechariah and the message he was trying to give. But we're just trying to give you a basic grasp of some of the elements while also recognizing that I could be wrong about some of this stuff. It's certainly not clear cut, maybe as much as we'd like, but that doesn't mean that we can't glean something from it. And one helpful North Star in reading these prophecies, and this really helps throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, is to interpret these passages in light of the New Testament. That's something that is a bit of an advantage that we have that uh, the people in the Old Testament didn't have. We understand things in light of Christ. And I've mentioned this in prior episodes, I think, but uh, one of the things that you can read in the the Gospels, for example, the Gospel of Matthew, is that Jesus is very self-conscious. He recognizes, not in the sense that he's like nervous, but he's very aware of the fact that in his life and his ministry, he is retelling the story of Israel. He is presenting himself as the new Israel, or rather the, the cornerstone upon which the new Israel is built. It's not about ethnic identity. It's not about your proximity to the temple or the land itself. The primary focus of the New Testament is showing how all the promises in the Old Testament about a new Jerusalem, a renewed and restored people of God, a new son of David, a new descendant of David to ascend to the throne, all of that comes to its climax and fulfillment in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, centered around his life, death, resurrection, and his ascension. So if you look at Matthew, he leaves Egypt as a child just like Israel's exodus. And God even says, out of Egypt, I called my son. He fights temptation in the wilderness for 40 days, which is parallel to the 40 years of Israel's wanderings. Also, it parallels Adam and the serpent, Satan. And he's a second Adam who doesn't fall for the temptations, who is faithful to the words of God, unlike the first Adam. He gets baptized in the Jordan, just like Israel got baptized as they crossed the parted Jordan Sea into the promised land. And when he enters into the land, he cleanses the holy land of occupying demons, much like Israel cleansed the holy land of the Canaanites that were there. Jesus gets exiled at the cross. He's cut off, but then he rises again, much like Israel experienced exile in Babylon, only to be reborn again into the land during Zechariah's day. And of course, there's future greater restorations because we know that Zechariah's day wasn't the fullness of the restoration. That story gets embodied in Christ. His resurrection is God making good on establishing a new Israel, on establishing new life and restoration, of establishing a new life after exile and sin and judgment. So this close parallel indicates that the promises of Israel's restoration find their ultimate fulfillment, not in a building or a city, 
but in Jesus Christ himself. So when we read these restorative promises, we need to understand them in light of Jesus and how he fulfills the story of Israel. This is Understanding Zechariah. Zechariah 14 takes us into the distant future and draws upon themes woven throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. On the one hand, God dwells with Israel and promises them a glorious, restored kingdom that draws the nations away from idols to true worship. But on the other hand, Israel itself continually sins and merits God's curse of both exile and destruction while sitting under the oppression of the nations that they were called to disciple. Instead of making the nations more like them, they have become more like the nations. And the Old Testament's answer to the resolving of this tension, how can Israel, God's uh, force to bring light to the Gentiles, who has now become darkened by paganism and by idolatry, how can, how can that be resolved? How can God's plan go forth when the vessel for his purposes has been so corrupted. And the answer lies in the day of the Lord. This is a day that's consistently referenced in the Old Testament and refers to a decisive act of God in history that brings salvation to his people and judgment to his enemies. And those are two sides of the same coin. And Zechariah 14 gives us three snapshots of this day of the Lord. And actually it's a day that recurs over and over again in history, but culminates in major events, especially toward the end of time. The final judgment day is is the final day of the Lord. But we sort of see in this Old Testament prophecy that future day as a pattern. Think of it like a, a musical theme that keeps repeating over and over again. And this future day of the Lord, this decisive act of the Lord, is broken down in different little vignettes. First, there's the coming of the Lord, which is verses 1 to 5 of chapter 14. Then the defeat of Israel's enemies, that's verses 6 to 15. And finally, the grafting in of the nations, verses 16 to 21. Let's look at that first section. The fall of Jerusalem and the coming of the Lord, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 14. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. So chapters 12 to 14 form one unit, which features two sieges of Jerusalem. In chapter 12, God delivers Jerusalem from this collaborative attack of the nations upon them. But in chapter 14, God gives Jerusalem over to the nations, so they actually are defeated. Now let's zoom out and consider some of the details before we get into the nitty-gritty of what this means. The nations plunder Jerusalem, and they take half the city into exile. Then the Lord comes, and he stands on the Mount of Olives, and it splits into a valley, which provides a way of escape for those who flee the city from an earthquake, an earthquake that is similar to the earthquake in the days of Uzziah. I think Amos mentions that. Once they flee, the Lord himself comes with his holy ones, which might be a reference to angels. So again, this is a, a very fuzzy kind of image. Now note that there are two historical threads that are picked up in this passage, the exile and the exodus. These are two really important key aspects of Israel's self-understanding and their history. Half the city will go into exile, 
And then God will part the mountains, much like he parted the Red Sea for his people to escape uh, the Egyptian armies. It appears that half the city that goes in exile does so by escaping Jerusalem. So God makes this valley, and they can use that to escape Jerusalem. And remember that this is, again, a rough outline. So we, we can sort of piece together some of these details. And one of the things we want to go is, okay, where do we see the Mount of Olives and the Lord coming in the New Testament? Well, we see that when Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives and he predicts the fall of the temple in Jerusalem. And he warns his disciples to flee the coming destruction of the city. So he's standing on the Mount of Olives and he's telling his disciples, he's pointing to the temple, which, by the way, is the temple that Zechariah's people rebuilt. And he's saying it's become so corrupted. It's become so filled with with unbelief because they've rejected the Messiah that God's going to judge it. He's going to destroy that temple. It's a shocking statement. And then he says, there his disciples are like, well, when is this going to happen? And Jesus tells them in Matthew 24, verses 15 to 16, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the, the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Then later on in 24, chapter 24 of Matthew, he says, then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Now, maybe you've heard that before as a reference to the rapture, but that's not really what's happening. It says that there's two men in the field, one's going to be taken, one left. I think that's actually referring to one of them's going to run. <laughs> He's going to leave the city because God is going to destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple. And I think these two form together. There's two men in the field, one's going to be taken, uh, fleeing away. And, and that's, I think that's, that's playing on the, on the figure of speech of half of the people in Jerusalem are going to go away. Right? One's going to stay, one's going to leave. Half will go into exile. But what's interesting is the exile isn't a punishment. It's actually a form of salvation. There's a little ironic twist that the people who escape Jerusalem escape its judgment. Now, there's a really important date that you need to remember. It's the year 70 AD. That's when the Romans came in and they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. And it's still destroyed to this day. It's this cataclysmic event for Judaism. If you have no temple, you have no sacrifices, you have no genealogy to know who the priests are, and you have no central place of worship. It fundamentally changed Judaism. Um, and so... This is a cataclysmic event, but it's an event that Jesus himself predicted would happen within a generation. And so Jesus is shown to be a true prophet. Now, historically, interestingly enough, Christians who heeded the warnings of Jesus, basically to, guys, get out of the city. When things start going down, that's when you know that the Romans are going to come in, that God's going to judge the temple, it's going to be destroyed. Once this craziness starts happening, you know you've got to flee the city. You've got to get out of there ASAP. And we actually have historical records of Christians leaving Jerusalem and going to the nearby city of Pella, which is beyond the mountains. And they escaped the wrath of God when he came and destroyed Jerusalem through the vessel of the Roman army. Now, again, this is a shocking revelation. The city, the temple, the exiles rebuilt will not last. That's why Jesus got so much flack for saying the temple will be destroyed. Like, what are you talking about, Jesus? God told us to rebuild this temple. We learn in the Gospels that Jesus Christ is the true temple. His body is the temple, right? The, 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 the second temple was rebuilt, but then it was corrupted. You have guys like King Herod who take over, and they add on to it, but they've corrupted the religion, and uh, the priesthood itself has become corrupt. They no longer honor God. And so the restored temple, the new Jerusalem, the revived Israel, is not centered on the building, the temple, right? But it's centered on a person, Jesus Christ. He is the one who is the renewed Israel. He is the center of what God is doing now in the world. This means that Jerusalem has become like Egypt. 
and its corruption under the scribes and Pharisees, right? The, the, the people escaping Jerusalem, it's likened to escaping Pharaoh. And you see all these reversals, especially in the book of Revelation. So Rome, which is an empire comprised of multiple nations, sieges Jerusalem, and God gives them over as a judgment. Now, we don't have a temple standing today because of this historical judgment. God, again, ends the old covenant system through Rome. And I think that is one echo, one future echo of this prophecy. I also think there's a further future echo in which there's going to be a final shaking of the heavens and the earth on the last day. But I think the more immediate fulfillment is Zechariah is looking toward a day when the nations are going to shake. They're going to think about it. If Jesus is Israel, he is shaken by the nations, right? It's the Jews and the Romans who conspire together to attack and destroy Jesus, right? And so in that sense, Israel is attacked by the nations, but Israel as embodied in its Messiah. Okay, now let's look at the resurrection of Jerusalem in verses 6 to 15. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepresses. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security, and this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another. And the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. We then get another aspect of this future prophecy. Again, these aren't always chronological. They're not super detailed, but it's giving us a fuzzy outline of the future. And this future, we see there's a unique day in which God only knows. uh, And it's when the old created order changes. There's no light, cold, or frost, no day or night. God's day of judgment seems to end old creation and brings about a new creation. And there's, there's this Edenic language. Jerusalem will flow with living waters over all, over all the earth. You look back in Genesis 1 to, th- 1 to 2, you see that, that rivers are flowing from Eden and, and feeding the entire earth. And you think about Ezekiel, he has a prophecy about a future temple that, that flows out with waters that water all of creation. And throughout Scripture, we see that living water is a symbolic reference to the Holy Spirit. He will cause God's name to be one and His name one, which I think is a way of indicating that the world will acknowledge Him as the one true God. And Jerusalem's dimensions expand to exceed any single location. God's going to deliver His people and defeat the nations, which causes Jerusalem to dwell in security. And again, I think He's he's speaking in Old Testament terms about New Testament future realities. So He's saying that one day God is going to make Jerusalem rest in security. But when we see the further revelation of the New Testament, we realize what he means is all of God's people will dwell in security because God will act in a decisive way to bring about a new creation in which there is no war, in which the old creation is passed away. And this is, I think, pointing toward to, God, to Christ's return 
when Christ returns and renews all things. And we will see this. So it's not even just about Jerusalem. Again, God expands these promises to all of creation as we see that in the New Testament. So after the destruction of the temple, Jesus comes, or rather, (laughs) there's the formation of a new Jerusalem. So the Romans come, they destroy the temple, but that's also when the church begins to really erupt outwards. And so the church is formed around Jesus, and they form that new Jerusalem, and they have a new temple. They themselves are living stones, as 1 Peter tells us, and they're indwelt by his Holy Spirit. And as the gospel spreads forth, God's rule incorporates more and more nations which build up this living body, this living temple, with more and more glory. And the church as new Jerusalem is a foretaste of this new creation, breaking forth in the old creation. So we still experience night and day, cold and frost, but a new reality has been birthed in our midst as God's kingdom breaks into this present age of darkness through Christ. Okay, so think about it like this. One day, God's going to renew all of creation. But that process has already begun in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the destruction of the temple is sort of that first major block of the old creation going away. The old order being disassembled. And then the birth of the church as the new Jerusalem is the first fruits, the first coming of of that new humanity. That new creation is beginning now in Jesus Christ as Jews and Gentiles alike, by their faith in Christ, are being grafted into this new society, this new Jerusalem, which is the fulfillment of all the things that Zechariah is looking forward to. This glorious future of Jerusalem is going to happen in a miraculous, marvelous way that he can't yet see. And he's only seeing in a fuzzy outline. But in the New Testament, we see the clear outline that we're talking about Jesus Christ and the formation of a new people of God, or the fulfillment of the old people of God in the church. And that leads us to this last part of chapter 14, verses 16 to 21. A day is coming. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So the church, the new Jerusalem's work throughout all of time, brings the nations who once warred against and sieged Israel into her gates as fellow citizens. We also know we're dealing with spiritual language because of the reference to bells on horses inscribed with holy to the Lord. In the Old Testament, only the priests wore bells along with an engraved plaque that said holy to the Lord. They were the only ones allowed in the Holy of Holies, which is the innermost and most sacred part of the temple where God's presence dwelt. But in the New Jerusalem, in the New Covenant, even the horses are set apart as holy. Holiness permeates the entirety of all this new humanity as God's presence fills all the world, making all creation a holy of holies. All pots, not just the one used for the temple, will be sanctified. Traders who bargain for sacrifice will no longer be needed because holiness will be readily available to all. We're seeing imagery of new creation in terms of the old creation. And again, we can see the pattern. 
Jesus Christ, the embodied Israel, he is exiled when the nations rage against him with the alliance of Jews and Romans who crucify him. But his resurrection brings about the beginning of this restoration period. So in the resurrection of Christ, I think we start to see God sowing the seeds of this eventual new creation that's going to happen when Jesus comes again. Now, why does Zechariah end with his emphasis on the Feast of Booths, otherwise known as the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, Israel celebrated this feast to commemorate God dwelling with them in the wilderness. It's also a marker of the time of harvest. Israel offered 70 sacrifices during this feast, which is a number commonly associated with the Gentile nations. If we put this together, the Feast of Tabernacles celebrates God dwelling with his people, who are gathered from the nations for fellowship. Zechariah 12 begins with Passover illusions of a pierced shepherd, and then it moves to Pentecost with the Spirit poured out, bringing repentance. And then it goes to a day of atonement with a a shepherd who's struck and that scatters the sheep. But finally, we come to this final feast, the Feast of Booths. God gives both sacrifices and his Spirit in order that he might have fellowship and feast with us. I think that's what the Feast of Booths reference is all about. God ultimately wants us to make our home with him. He ultimately wants us to dwell with him. That's the the ultimate promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. But how's that going to happen? Well, he's going to give them a shepherd who's stricken, who dies for their sins, but he's also going to give them his spirit that gives them new life and allows them to repent and brings times of uh, refreshment and times of restoration to his people. And just as the exiles the return to exiles in Zechariah's day needed encouragement to build the temple. We too need encouragement to build the temple of God's body, the body of Christ, the church, as we live faithfully according to the word of God. Zechariah's prophecies belong to the people of God throughout all ages. This is our history. This is our heritage. And it's also our future. And our faith allows us to find ourselves within this narrative unfolding before our very eyes. We are just one link in a chain that has extended centuries before us, thousands of years before us, and will likely go many, many generations into the future. And we will rejoice alongside Zechariah in glory on the day when Jesus returns and he establishes new creation and he resurrects us from the dead. And then the living waters will flow from Jerusalem out to all of creation, restoring and renewing and bringing resurrection glory to all that the curse has stricken, to all who are under the bondage and decay of death. We will see Romans 8 fulfilled before our eyes as we are revealed as his sons of glory in our resurrected bodies. So what we want to see, again, to sum it up, Zechariah is saying God has a future, a glorious future planned for his people, but it won't come without suffering. And that pattern of suffering than glory is ultimately demonstrated in the suffering of Christ, but also the glory of Christ. And so we see that as a pattern for our own lives. That as the church goes through times of suffering, it will always result in glory. That we shouldn't lose heart. That we should continue to build. And we should recognize that this is a long-term project. This is something that doesn't happen overnight, but happens over many generations. And our job in our present age is to be faithful with the one small part of the relay race that we ourselves are running. But we do it empowered by the Spirit of God. Atoned for by the blood of our stricken shepherd. With the promise that all things will one day be put in their right place, that the time of restoration will come, that the nations will stream in and we will see God in all of his glory reigning over the earth when the Lord's prayer is answered, when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven.